Ash Wednesday, uh, you may or may not know, marks the beginning of the season of Lent. And Lent is a newer-ish sort of tradition uh, for Calvary. And so I think this is the third year uh, that we've marked the beginning of Lent with the Lenten service on Ash Wednesday. Maybe it's new for you, um, not part of your tradition growing up. Maybe you're uh, new to Christianity, or maybe this is uh, something that brings back a lot of memories uh, for you uh, when you were growing up in your church tradition. Either way, Lent is a helpful reminder, just like Advent and uh, the celebrations around Holy Week, of the rhythms of the Christian life. And observing the cycle of the church calendar throughout the year helps us stay kind of grounded and then rounded in the rhythms of the gospel. And it keeps us from narrowing our focus down to the parts of the Christian story or the parts of life with God that we most naturally resonate with. So Ash Wednesday and Lent then remind us of the frailty, of the mortality and of our need for God, which candidly is not one of our favorite parts of life, right? our mortality and our frailty. But that's the point of Ash Wednesday. It's the point of the ashes on Ash Wednesday. Many Christians uh, traditions mark the forehead with ashes on Ash Wednesday as a way to remember and to remind ourselves that we are from ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But Lent doesn't just remind us that we are sinners in need of God's grace. That's so very true. But it also reminds us that we are creatures in need of God's sustaining grace. So even quite independent of sin, independent of our fallenness, independent of what we've seen in the story of the Bible so far through our narrative in Genesis chapter 3 with humanity's rebellion against God's wisdom, even independent of our sin, all of us stand in need of God's sustaining grace and kindness. Every breath that we take, every breath that Adam and Eve took prior to their sin was a gift and a kindness from God. That's Jesus' story, too. As we get to the Gospels, we see that Jesus comes and inhabits the life of a creature. The Creator Himself comes and inhabits the life of a creature. And in the creatureliness that He inhabits, He depends upon God for sustaining grace. He had no sin, of course, and yet He lived His whole life in dependence upon God. And in many ways, that's also the story that we find here in Job. Chris helpfully drew the connection as we began the service between the life of Christ, who was blameless without sin, and yet was confronted by the devil and went through a period of testing. And here we have Job, who is introduced by God himself as a man who is blameless and upright, and also undergoes testing from the devil. So tonight, as we continue our story of the Bible series, we mark a new segment in our story. We've been in the beginnings, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, really, and then we begin a new segment in our story called the Patriarchs, and this is where we fit Job into our series. Uh, tonight, uh, in this era of the Patriarchs, 
Uh, we have the focus on Abraham, his near offspring, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, all of these uh, founders of the faith, as it were, these initial uh, people who are, who are called out by God, entered into covenant with God. And Job, from the best we can tell, lived in the days of the patriarchs. So he lived after the days of the flood, the great flood of Noah that we saw on Sunday. Uh, but he also lives before the great laws that are given through the prophet Moses. And as we're going to see this evening, as we look at the story of Job, as we examine Lent and our part in it, we see that the story of Job is bookended in ashes. But in the midst of the ashes that bookend the story of Job, there is also a hopeful message about the human being's ultimate hope in God. And we're going to end with the hope that the story of Job brings to us, and then we'll come together and celebrate communion, which is our reminder of hope. So here on this Ash Wednesday, let's let the ashes of Job remind us of four core truths about the human existence. I would ask this as we move through these four truths for you to be thinking and prayerfully considering which of these four, maybe all four, do you need the ashes of Ash Wednesday to remind you of this season of Lent? As we enter into this season of Lent in preparation for Easter, we're called to remember our dependence upon God. What aspects of Job's story come to mind that you need to focus on during this particular season of Lent? Let me just briefly recount the story of Job from beginning to end. We noticed, we looked at and read together the uh, beginning of Job's story. We want to get the whole picture in here. Job, of course, in chapter 1, he is at the height of his earthly greatness. He has wealth. He has a great family, and he has this statement given by God that we see in the heavenly council. We have this statement from God himself that Job is blameless and upright, fearing God. So Job has righteousness, he has wealth, he has a beautiful family. What more could he possibly ask for? But he is brought to utter ruin in a moment by the adversary by the Satan, the Satan. And yet we saw in the reading that he's not just brought to ruin by the adversary, but the adversary can't touch Job except that God gives him permission. And so we see that God in some way is the ultimate buck stops here authority in the world, in Job's world, and nothing can come into Job's world except that God gives permission. Satan himself complains and says, I can't touch him because you've got, a, you've got a hedge around him. But take the hedge away and then we'll see whether he's really loyal to you. And so God removes the hedge and Satan comes in with his tests and ruins Job's wealth, ruins Job's property, ruin ultimately ruins Job's health. And according to the conventional religious wisdom of the day in which Job lived, bad things are not supposed to happen to blameless people. 
If something bad happens to someone, particularly something bad of this nature, then clearly this person is being judged by God for some sin that has yet perhaps to be manifest. Bad things are not supposed to happen to blameless people. And yet, they have happened to Job. And Job insists on his innocence. His speeches throughout the book of Job are him maintaining and holding to his integrity. He acknowledges that God is the ultimate judge. God is the one before whom all must give to account. And at the, at, in the most ultimate sense, there is no one who is righteous before God. But, but in the sort of sense in which the world lives, Job knows that he has done nothing to merit this sort of judgment that has befallen him. But his friends who come along to comfort him quickly turn upon him and they insist that he must have sinned. He must have done something wrong to merit this level of God's disfavor and judgment. And so much of the book is going back and forth between Job and his friends, with Job maintaining this innocence and that he has committed no wrongdoing. And his friends saying, well, we don't know exactly what you've done, but you must have done something because this kind of stuff doesn't happen to people who are innocent. So the whole book is an account of Job's lament and his confusion his frustration with God, and his inability to make sense of God. And so he sits at the end of our reading, at the end of the chapter, in the ashes, and he weeps. So as we look through the pages of Job, I reread it again uh, this morning just to kind of reacclimate myself back to the message of Job. But we look at the story of Job from beginning to end. The, the ashes that Job sits in remind us of some things. See which of these they remind you of. Job's ashes, first of all, remind us that all things, all things, both blessings and trials, come from the hand of God. This is something that Job and his friends didn't quite have a category for. They assumed that if you lived right, you got right. If you lived wrong, you got wrong. And so Job himself knew he hadn't lived wrong, but he was getting wrong from God. And that didn't make sense to him. Job's friends thought he must have done something sly on the side. He must have had some secret sin. That's why he was getting something wrong. We can't outperform, though, the reality that in this life we are going to have trials. And that was the heir of Job's friends. They thought that if Job was living right, really behaving himself, he wouldn't have these trials. But not even Jesus, we see as we go later on into the story, lived in this world without suffering. And if there's anyone who lived right in this world, it was Jesus. Now, there's a lot of complexity here to this. Theologians, since the very beginning, all the way back even before Christ, into the Old Testament Jewish theologians, have wrestled with these questions about 
the source of evil and suffering and bad things happening to good people, and how can God be just in the midst of all this? These complex questions, I'm not going to try to answer it here tonight. I think maybe perhaps there are not totally satisfying answers to some of these questions. But there is a reason. There is a reason that when we encounter suffering and trial, we're tempted to shake our fist at God. Why do we go to God? Why did Job go to God? We go to God, and Job went to God, because we all know that at the end of the day, it doesn't happen if God doesn't say it. It doesn't happen to us apart from God's saying it. Even Jesus himself, he talked about how not even the sparrows can fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Nothing happens in this world apart from God saying it can happen. And Job knew that. And so in spite of all the bad things that happened, he didn't go and blame the Sabaeans. He didn't go and blame the Chaldeans. He didn't go and blame the architects of his house for not making it windproof. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. This has come to us from God. And that's what caused all the consternation in his heart throughout the whole book of Job, trying to come to terms with the fact that here this God who is righteous and sovereign over all, whom he has faithfully honored and faithfully lived before, has nonetheless allowed this ruin to be brought into his life. I was talking with a friend who came from a particular Christian tradition that had more of a kind of a belief in God's sovereignty like Job's friends. You just do right and God will treat you right. And I said, well, how do you guys handle the book of Job? And he said, hmm, we don't, we don't really try to think about the book of Job. <laughs> I think that was an honest answer. That was an honest answer. But if you have the sort of theological frame that good things don't happen to anyone except good people and bad things don't happen to anyone except bad people, then you really haven't grappled with the message of the book of Job. So Job's ashes remind us that all things, both blessings and trials, come from the hand of God. Maybe tonight you need humility before God in the face of your blessings. Maybe you think that somehow you've got the life of Job before Satan showed up, and you think that that's coming to you largely from your own efforts. Sure, maybe God is blessed, but you've deserved the blessing. Or maybe you need humility before God in the face of your trials. Because you're tempted, like Job is tempted throughout much of the book of Job, to shake your fist at God and say, I don't deserve this. And so often we want to come to God and get what we think we deserve. We come to claim our rights before God. But the story of Job reminds us that we have no rights before God. Not rights to merit good things and not rights to prevent our meriting bad things. All things come from the hand of God. That's the first thing that Job's ashes remind us about. Second thing Job's ashes remind us is that even at our best, we are frail. 
Even at our tip-top condition, we are still frail. Job was at the height of all that could be had by a human being in the world of his day. And yet it wasn't sufficient to escape the suffering and the trial that he then endured. We are, all of us, mortal, and we are at the mercy of the capriciousness of this life. And we cannot build our walls of defense high enough to protect us from the inevitable suffering that will come. Sickness and ultimately death will come for all of us. I've quoted Seneca before. He was an ancient pagan Roman Jewish statesman. He has a lot of good little quips, but he says this. He says, in the ashes, all men are leveled. We are born unequal, but we all die equal. That's true. You can be born rich. You can be born poor. We're born unequal, but in the end, we all die the same. He didn't know God, but he knew enough to see that that was true about life. And Job's story reminds us that all of us, no matter what place we are in life, no matter how much we have amassed, no matter how, how we have built the walls, we all will come to the same end. So perhaps this Lenten season, the ashes need to remind you about how vain it is to rely on earthly strength. Maybe you're in a season of life coming into this uh, time of Lent where everything is going as it should. You've got everything dialed in just right. Life is looking good. And like Job, you're like, and I'm pretty righteous too. Let this season of Lent perhaps be a reminder to not rely on earthly strength, to be reminded of the frailty of the things that you have in this world. Third, Job's ashes remind us that life can be crushingly hard, even with God. If you haven't read the whole story of Job, it's good to do to be reminded that even with God, even believing in God, life can be crushingly hard. Job 17, 1, very much in the middle of the book, he says, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. That's how Job feels. We don't all feel like that every day. Thank God. But maybe there's a, one or two of you in here tonight that feel like that, right? That your spirit is crushed, and broken, and your days are extinct. The theology that Job's friends are bringing to Job really is, ironically, very consistent with the theology of the Psalms. And if you've ever read the Psalms, like just the whole of the Psalms, one of the things that you see in kind of the whole of the Psalms, just taking the 50,000-foot view, is that God does say that he will reward the righteous and he will punish the wrongdoer. 
Job's friends aren't making this up whole cloth. This is consistent with how God works in the world and how he's revealed himself. But if you read the Psalms closely, which were written after the days of Job, most likely, but if you read the Psalms closely, you'll see that it's not all black and white. It's not always so neat and clean that the righteous get theirs and the wicked get theirs. Sometimes it gets muddled and messy, and it leads to some confusion and some discomfort amongst the psalmists. Here's a psalm that's good in pointing some of this out. A friend of mine and their family would read through the psalms together uh, as a family with the kids, which is a great idea. It's one good thing to do. And so they would read a new psalm, maybe at dinner or whenever they would read the psalm together. And then they got to Psalm 88. Let me read you Psalm 88. Think about this for your family devotions. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do you... Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The end. And the poor family was like, oh, well, you know. (laughs) There you go, kids. You know, right? Almost all the psalms start like that. Not almost all of them. The psalms that start like that, almost all of them, except Psalm 98, end with reaffirming, yet I will still praise God because he will come to my aid. But Psalm 88 doesn't. Psalm 88 just ends in the despair of the psalmist. And that's how life is sometimes. I mean, the psalms all together speak of God coming to our aid. But there's this reality in which sometimes just seems like God doesn't come. And we cry to him, and we call to him, and we're faithful to him, and we plead for him, and he just doesn't seem to come. And that's how the story seems to end. This is the same place that Job finds himself in. He could have written Psalm 88. That's Job's psalm. Christianity is not some triumphalistic faith that promises an escape from suffering and pain. So maybe this Lenten season, you need to let go of a triumphalist notion of Christianity, a crossless version of the gospel story. 
some version of the gospel story where Jesus doesn't call you to come and die. He calls us all to come and die. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to die, therefore you don't have to die. He says, I'm going to die. And I'm going to teach you how to die. And you're going to die with me. And then I'm going to rise and I'm going to take you with me. I'm going to show you how to die. That's the message of Christianity. Not that you don't have to die. He calls us all to come and die. Christianity doesn't give us an end around suffering and death, but rather gives us an explanation for our suffering. So Job's ashes, the ashes of Ash Wednesday, remind us that life can be crushingly hard, even with God. Maybe that's something you need to embrace this season of Lent. So Christianity doesn't give us an end around suffering. It gives us an explanation for suffering. But the explanation that it gives us isn't perhaps the explanation that we might be prone to think. That wasn't the case for Job. Job's ashes remind us that the peace and life... Try that again. So number four, Job's ashes remind us that peace and life comes to us when we surrender to the person of God rather than the explanations of God. As you read through the book of Job, Job just has questions, questions. Like, none of this makes sense. None of this fits. It doesn't work out, God. Talk to me. Tell me why this is happening. I want to come to God, but I can't find him. I want to plead my case before God, but he won't listen to me. All these questions that he brings to God, and God answers none of them. Not a single one does he answer. Job finally falls silent after 30-some-odd chapters. And then God shows up. And you know what God does when he shows up? He just starts asking Job questions. He doesn't answer any of Job's questions. He's like, you got some questions for me? I got some questions for you. He says, brace yourself up like a man. Stand up on your feet. I'm going to ask you some questions now. And you're going to answer my questions. And then he just comes after Job with just a litany of questions, questions that Job has no answer for. And he brings these questions to Job, and Job is overwhelmed by all of these questions that are brought before him. At the end of God's questioning of Job, we get to the very last chapter, and here's Job's answer to God. Job answered the Lord and said, I know now that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have uttered what I did not understand. I have uttered things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. And then I love this line. Listen to what he says. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So he starts off in ashes, bringing his lament to God. God shows up with all of his questions, put back on Job, 
But God reveals himself to Job, and Job repents and ends back in the ashes. For as long as Job demanded divine explanations, he was in turmoil. He wanted God to explain himself. He thought, if I can just have an explanation from God, I will have peace. If God will just tell me what he's up to, I will have peace. And God doesn't show up and say, hey, listen, Job, okay, let me just sort this out. There's like this Satan thing, and he comes in, and we were talking, and I was like, have you checked out Job? And Satan's like, no, he's not that great. And so we got into this little contest. So I said, he could have a crack at you, and you've done very well, which is very good. Nice job, you know. But don't worry, I'm going like, to give you everything back. It's all going to work out, so you're fine, right? God gives no explanation to Job. As far as the story of Job goes, Job never finds out the backstory that we just read in chapters 1 to. No explanations. And as long as Job demanded the divine explanation, he was in turmoil. But once he stopped asking for explanations and submitted to the person of God, then he found peace. He found peace when he submitted to the person of God. So C.S. Lewis quote, one of my favorite quotes, if you know much about the story of C.S. Lewis, a great Christian thinker, married late in life, and his wife, uh, not long after they were married, contracted cancer, and uh, she died. And this just, just broke Lewis's heart, and uh, he wrote a journal that kind of processed his grief over the loss of his wife, and in this journal was then published later uh, under the title, A Grief Observed. But he talked about how he he had brought all these questions to God as to why God would bring joy, his wife, laid to his life for just this brief season and then take her away. Why would God seemingly heal her for a brief season and then have the cancer return and take her away? Why, God? Why, God? Why, God? He wrote this. He says, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It's not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head not in refusal, but waving the question, like, peace, child, you don't understand. And Lewis, I think, found the answer to his suffering in his confidence that God did understand. And that had God tried to explain it to Lewis about why it all worked out the way that it worked, it would have been like an adult trying to explain astrophysics to a five-year-old. At some point, you just need to pat him gently on the head and just say, peace, child. You don't understand. I understand. And that has to be enough for you. And that has, that's how it has to be for us, that we encounter trials that we cannot understand, we cannot make sense of. And if we try to make sense of it, if we try to demand that we will only have peace when God explains it, then we will never have peace because the explanations stretch beyond our capacity to understand. We need to trust that he understands, that he has his reasons, that he knows what he's doing. And if he knows what he's doing, then that's enough for us. So do you need to surrender to God 
in the midst of your trial and your suffering. Some of you perhaps are in a difficult spot. You're in the midst of trial. You're in the midst of suffering. There's something in your life you can't figure out. You can't get past. You can't get past a pain. You can't get past a loss. You can't get past a trial. Do you need to surrender to God in the midst of that suffering? Do you need to stop seeking for explanations and instead just start seeking for him? So often when we're coming to God for explanations, we're not really coming to God in faith, are we? Because the faith really is just faith in our capacity to understand. But when we come to God for who he is and we're willing to rest in his person and who he is, then our faith is in him. Perhaps like Job at the start of the book, you only know about God, but don't yet really know him. Perhaps you've only heard of him with the hearing of the ear, but you've never really seen him with the seeing of the eye. Or maybe it's been so long since you've seen him with the seeing of the eye that you don't quite remember it much anymore. And perhaps the season of suffering that you're going through is the means by which God is bringing you back to himself to cause you to look for him, to look towards him, to pick your head up and say, there must be something more that I'm not seeing. He himself is the peace that you are looking for. Not his explanations, not his answers. He himself is the answer to your every question. Jesus is the answer, is God's answer to your question. The question of your hurt, the question of your pain, the question of your sorrow, the question of your struggle with sin. Jesus is the answer. He is the one that God has sent to deliver us out of the trials that we're in, in his way, in his time, for the purposes that he wants to accomplish in our lives, and then beyond anything that we know or could see or imagine in our lives, all the ways that that works out into eternity. So in this season of Lent, let's be reminded that both blessings and trials come from the hand of God. Let's be reminded that even at our best, we are frail. Let's be reminded that life can be crushingly hard, even as Christians. Let's be reminded that peace and life and joy comes to us when we surrender ourselves to the person of God.